Good morning, saints. There are some faces in the audience that are not familiar to me, and so I also welcome you to our church, Redeemed South Bay, and because I forget to do this when I'm supposed to, at the end of the sermon, I'm going to do it up front. There'll be some men standing up front after the sermon during the song, and those are the elders of this church. If you have any prayer need whatsoever, we invite you, we welcome you, we encourage you, we maybe even exhort you to come and share yourself with your pastor elders that they might pray and intercede on your behalf. With that being said, I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24 will be our text this morning. Ephesians 6, verses 21 through 24. And I invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is, beloved, the only true God, and this is his word. So that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father, and the Lord, and Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord, Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. Let us pray. Triune God, eternally existing as Father and Son and Spirit, exalt your name in our hearts and in our minds as we conclude this precious book. Teach us by your Spirit through your Word that we might be increasingly conformed into the image of your beloved Son. Encourage us. Correct us. Lead us. Guide us. That you might be exalted and we might be humbled before you. Both today and every day. Use your word in this hour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the saying goes, all good things must come to an end. And while that saying is not always true, it is true in this case. That is, we're at the end of the book of Ephesians. And the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, has penned this letter to a local church to remind them that they are spiritually wealthy and to call them to live in light of that wealth or to walk as wealthy ones. And by extension, God tells our local church the exact same thing. Saints of Redeemed South Bay, you're wealthy. Now live in light of your wealth. You are spiritually rich in Christ, for God the Father has blessed you in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And not only that, but you have confidence because he has sealed you with his Holy Spirit. You're spiritually rich in Christ, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, has made you alive together with Christ. You're spiritually rich in Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. You are spiritually rich, for you are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus. My beloved saints, you're wealthy. 
in Christ. Now live. How do we live in light of this spiritual wealth that we have? And we're thankful that the book of Ephesians doesn't leave us to do the guessing work. We don't have to figure this out on our own. The book speaks, yes, of the reality of our wealth, but it also speaks of its practicality. And so being situated in Christ, we are now commanded and enabled by the Spirit to appropriate our spiritual blessings by walking in accordance with our wealth. And so, as you might remember, the book calls us to walk in unity, to walk in purity, to walk in love, to to walk in the light, to walk in wisdom, so that we might stand firm against the schemes of the devil in the midst of a supreme spiritual wrestling match. And what I've just done for us is I've stated the book of Ephesians in a nutshell, which brings us to the final four verses of our study. I've entitled this sermon, A Farewell Rooted in Love. A Farewell Rooted in Love. And before we get to the main idea of our sermon, I want to underscore Paul's experience with and deep love for the church at Ephesus. Paul's love for and experience with the church provides really a proper backdrop for us to better grasp his final greeting. And so turn with me, if you would, please, to Acts chapter 20. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapters 19 and 20, we get an overview of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And we know from Acts 19 and 20 that Paul spends a longer period of time in Ephesus with the church than any other church that he visited mentioned in Scripture. So let's begin in chapter 19, where God uses Paul to plant or to begin the church with about 12 men. Look with me at verses 5 through 7. These men, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So the church in Ephesus started with fewer people than this local church started with. And we see that Paul has this initial evangelistic ministry. Look at verse 8. He says, And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and there, and for there, or I'm sorry, and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So as was his custom, he would go into the synagogue and he would preach Christ and preach the things of the kingdom of God. He's evangelizing really anyone who would give him an ear. And then we see a discipleship ministry in verses 9 and 10. But when some became stubborn... And continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, which refers to an early Christian name for the religion, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he, Paul, withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And look at this in verse 10. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so a few disciples from Paul's three months of ministry in the synagogue leads to a more intense discipleship ministry, such that as he's discipling these people for two years, the word of God spreads about Asia to both Jews and Greeks, all stemming from Paul's discipleship ministry. And not always is this the case, but for Paul, this discipleship ministry turned into a mega-ministry. Look at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. We're told about some of those miracles. And then in verse 17 it says, And this, this occasion of a miracle, became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it 
came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's what we call conversion. That you're willing to throw it all away because you see Christ for who he is. And so what's the result of this mega ministry? Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, mega ministry is not without mega difficulties. And that's what we see in verses 21 through 41. And you can read that in your own time if you'd like to, but pretty much there's a riot in Ephesus, and this leads to the end of Paul's physical ministry in Ephesus, which we see in chapter 20, verse 1. It says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. And although Paul would no longer be in Ephesus, his ministry to the church in Ephesus doesn't stop there. He travels around for a while, and then we see that he has a ministry to the church through the Ephesian elders later on. Look with me at verse 16 of chapter 20. It says, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. Let's pause there for a moment. He spends three years there. He has a love and a care for this church. And you might think to yourself, why in the world, if you're going by Ephesus, don't you just stop into the little port city and say hello? Sometimes you're not able to swing by and say hello to those whom you love because you have other things that God has called you to do. And that's the case here. It says that he doesn't stop in Ephesus so that, continuing in verse 16, he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. But Ephesus is in his heart. And so what does he do? Verse 17, Now from Miletus, which is a city south of Ephesus... He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And they come. And verse 18 really gives us an insight into Paul's love for the church at Ephesus. It says in verse 18, And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul did for three years in the city of Ephesus. His love for Christ was expressed to, uh, to these people through teaching and preaching, both in public and from house to house. Skip down to verse 25. He says, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again comes a time in ministry where you have to say farewell and move on. And this is the case for Paul here. But that's not all he has to say. As a matter of fact, he, he loves them enough to tell them the truth. And look what he says in verses 26 through 30. Because you won't see me again, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And listen to this. And from among your own selves... From among you elders that I'm speaking to you will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Some of you will turn away from the truth because you'll want people to follow you rather than follow Christ is what he's warning. 
And he continues on with a warning. He says, therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul's great love for the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus also had a great love for Paul. Look at these elders' response in verses 37 and 38. It says, And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. From these passages that we've just surveyed in Acts 19 and 20, we can clearly see Paul's love for Christ, which necessitates Paul's love for Christ's people in Ephesus. And this is reciprocated by the church who loves Christ and his messenger, Paul. It would have been approximately three years or so, so from Paul's ministry to the elders in Miletus to when he wrote this letter. And there was certainly no love lost between Paul and the church. And this is evident in our last passage in the book of Ephesians. And so with this survey in mind, go ahead and turn back to the book of Ephesians as we are now ready to consider Paul's farewell rooted in love from, from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. And the main idea of this sermon is that in the final words of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul demonstrates two virtues that are exemplary for those who love the Lord Jesus Christ incorruptibly. Two exemplary virtues for those who love the Lord Jesus Christ incorruptibly. And I want you to note well that these two virtues are others-oriented, meaning that their focus is on serving others in the church. And I want to point out that love for the Lord Jesus Christ is inseparable from loving his people. And this is to manifest itself in outwardly serving the people of God in the context in which he has set you in, namely the context of the local church. And what I've done is in the outline provided for you, I put these two virtues in the form of imperatives to call you, to encourage you, to exhort you to follow the example of Paul. So the first imperative is convey Christian care, and the second imperative is bestow beautiful blessings. And so let's begin with the first imperative, convey Christian care in verses 21 and 22. And the conveyance of Christian care can be considered really under two headings. The first one being personal care in verse 21, and the second one being purposeful care in verse 22. And so we'll consider personal care first in verse 21. Once again, verse 21 reads, So that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Here we have Paul writing as one who personally cares about what the saints in Ephesus know. And he also speaks as one who knows that the saints personally care for him. Again, there is a reciprocal personal care evident from this text between Paul and the saints in Asia Minor. Paul, Paul cares that the saints know about his affairs, that they know about his circumstances, which includes both what Paul is doing and how Paul is doing. And we have to remember now that Paul's sitting in prison in Rome. Paul is sitting there writing this letter, and the love that Paul has for the church and the love that the church has for Paul moves him not only to send a scriptural letter, but also to send a personal report. And we remember in chapter 1, verse 15, 
Paul prays, and it tells us for this reason. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you. And so what we have is we have likely Tychicus coming to Paul in Rome to give a report about the church in Ephesus. And then you have Paul sending Tychicus back with a letter and a personal report. We call this two-way communication rooted in love for Christ and his people. Two-way communication rooted in love for Christ and his people. And so I'll just put it this way for us. What do we derive from this in our context? Namely, that Christians care about the who and the what and the when and the where and the why and the how of their fellow Christians. And if you care, you must communicate. And so we have to ask ourselves, how is our two-way communication? Are you known in getting to know your fellow saints in the context of the local church? And maybe before that, we should see to it that we love Christ and therefore care for his people. Amen? This is important. Why? Why? We have friends. We have certain things, hobbies, things that we're into. We can, we can make friends really anywhere. I'm a Ravens fan. I instantly like other Ravens fans. I'm a Lakers fan. I instantly like other Lakers. Laker fans. Is there something, is there something deeper than that? Is there something deeper than that that necessitates our care for one another? How in God's green earth do I serve with a pastor who, who loves the Dallas Cowboys? How in the world do I love Mike Koval, a, a Steelers fan? How, how do I do these things? Because there's something deeper than my hobbies or my interests that necessitates care. And first, it's my love for Christ and therefore my love for his people. Well, what is this deeper thing that you're alluding to, Kenny? A few verses in Ephesians tells us primarily that we're members of the body of Christ and therefore we're united. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. The context here, Paul's speaking about how Jews and Gentiles are now in the same body. He says in chapter 2, verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I mean, if Jews and Gentiles can get along in the context of Christ, and I can get along with the Steelers fan. Amen? He says in chapter 3, verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then look what he says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. After giving these first three chapters of doctrinal theological richness, he then says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Theological realities of the gospel enable us, beg us, move us to be eager people who realize that we're bound by the Spirit and so therefore we want to get along in a way that displays that to the entirety of the world. We're brothers and sisters in Christ such that we love Christ and care for one another. And that care for one another necessitates this helpful two-way communication. How does Paul do this though? Now we see that Paul employs Tychicus, not only to deliver the letter, but also to deliver the personal report. He says, for Tychicus will tell you everything. I, I love that phrase. Sometimes these little phrases, just, they just capture you. Paul has nothing to hide. Uh, he's going to tell you all that's going on. I've been sharing myself deeply with Tychicus such that Tychicus can share these realities with you when he arrives. He'll tell you everything. Tychicus is 
really an interesting character in the Bible. We don't know too much about him, but he's mentioned five times in the New Testament. Five times in the New Testament. And, and here he's described as the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. That's a pretty good description, amen? Lord, by your grace, help us to be described as beloved and faithful ministers. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, he's described in the same way, but with one addition. Not only is he a beloved brother and faithful minister, he's also a fellow servant. In Acts chapter 20, verse 4, it's Tychicus as one of the two Asians who helped Paul after the Ephesian riot. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul tells Timothy that he sent Tychicus to Ephesus. And in Titus chapter 3, verse 12, Paul tells Titus that he may send Tychicus to him. And so what we have from these five passages is this, that Tychicus probably delivered five of Paul's letters to either churches or people. Those letters being Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Moreover, Tychicus probably, certainly relieved Timothy, but probably also relieved Titus so that they could go back to be with Paul. And so we start to get this understanding that indeed Tychicus is a beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord. And the New Testament's mentioning of Tychicus teaches us a few things. Number one is this, that Paul is not a lone ranger. He works with a faithful team of servants to the glory of Christ and for the well-being of his people. I think uh, oftentimes we can think of Paul as just an individual juggernaut. He's out there doing these mighty, wonderful things, the lone ranger for Christ. Paul's deeply connected with a team of fellow servants. They use their strengths and their gifts and their abilities to the glory of Christ and for the well-being of his people. And so it should be with us that Christ is the lone ranger, if you will. And we simply serve him and glorify him. Second thing that the New Testament's mentioning of Tychicus teaches us it teaches us that faithful service to Christ does not mean that you must be front and center. Christ is the one who's to be front and center, which allows you and I to joyfully and freely function in the gifts and in the capacities that the Lord provides for us, even if that's delivering a letter. And related to that, number three, Tychicus really reminds us that it's an honor to bless God's people through simple, faithful service. It's an honor. Beloved, this verse displays that Christian care is personal care. We see so many things from this one verse. We, we see Paul's care for the church and the church's care for Paul. We see Paul's care for Tychicus and Tychicus's, uh, that was a hard one, Tychicus's, uh, uh, love for Paul. Also, we see Tychicus's love. I'll get through it, I promise. Love for the church and the church's love for Tychicus. And so, what? I would encourage you, Christian, to convey Christian care through personal care. Convey Christian care through personal care. However, Christian care is more than personal care. It's also purposeful care. We've already caught a glimpse of that in verse 21, but we see it even more explicitly in verse 22. So let's consider purposeful care in verse 22. Paul says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Paul reiterates really what he's already said in verse 21. The Greek could be literally rendered, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know the things concerning us. In other words, so that the church may know about their circumstances, Tychicus is coming to them. That's the purpose, the very purpose why Paul is sending him. But now, Paul adds a second purpose. 
which is for Tychicus to encourage their hearts with his report. The Greek word translated encourage in the ESV can also be translated comfort. And that's the idea in this context. Paul is sitting in prison. And I don't know about you, and I don't know even about myself. I've I've never been in prison. But if I were in prison, I would imagine that I would be tempted to be inward-focused, self-centered. Shoot, can I be honest with you guys? Outside of prison, I'm I'm tempted to be inward-focused and self-centered. And perhaps what I would be doing is looking for encouragement from those on the outside. Come and encourage me. Come and send me a a, a good meal or, or, or give me good news or whatever it might be. And certainly Paul did have brothers like Tychicus who were there ministering to him and I assume would have offered him some encouragement. However, that's not Paul's primary comfort and encouragement. Paul's primary comfort is in Christ. Christ commissioned Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles and Christ told Paul that he would suffer for his name's sake. And so, Paul being rooted in Christ and comforted by Christ is is not inward focused, but rather he is others oriented. He knows that the gospel cannot be bound by chains. And his concern is for those beloved brothers and sisters who he knows would be concerned about him. So therefore, after having written a theological and practical treatise on the gospel, He sends Tychicus to give a personal update, if you will, for the specific purpose of encouraging and comforting their hearts. Beloved, this verse displays that Christian care is purposeful care. Part of our caring for one another is being others-oriented by intentionally offering comfort and encouragement to one another. Of course, these days, you don't have to send someone nearly a thousand miles from Rome to Ephesus to offer encouragement, although you might. But it's far, far more easy for us to communicate purposeful care in our day and age. It can be a text. It can be a phone call. It might be an email. It might be a visit. It might be a meal. Believe it or not, pens still work on paper. And you might send someone a letter. Whatever it might be, be purposeful, brothers and sisters, that you would convey Christian care in the context of this local church purposefully and personally. Paul conveyed Christian care both personally and purposefully. And as fellow Christians, we should follow the example that he set for us. But Paul not only conveyed Christian care, he also bestowed beautiful blessings. And you guessed it, so should you. So let's look at our second and last imperative, bestow beautiful blessings in verses 23 and 24. And like our first point, the bestowal of beautiful blessings can be considered under two headings. First, God-sourced blessings in verse 23. And second, Christ-oriented blessings in verse 24. So let's begin with God-sourced blessings in verse 23. Again, the text reads, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may remember that the words grace and peace begin the the greeting of this letter found in chapter 1, verse 2. But now Paul closes this letter with the very same words, but in reverse order. Peace in verse 23 and grace in verse 24. And here Paul adds, not only peace to the brothers, but also love with faith. And in this context, peace is a word that communicates really a state of well-being. It's very similar to the Old Testament Hebrew term, a shalom. 
And the phrase love with faith communicates inseparable yet distinct realities that belong to Christians. And perhaps we can think of love with faith as two sides of the same coin. We think of love as being the head and faith as being the tail because love really presupposes and motivates one's faith or trust while faith enhances one's love. And Paul had really already mentioned a similar idea in chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Uh, Turn there with me as we look at chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Paul is is praying for the spiritual well-being of the saints in Ephesus, and he says, beginning in verse 17, "...so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted..." and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Similar idea that faith and love go hand in hand. So Paul bestows a blessing of peace and love with faith on the brethren. But it's the source, it's the source of these virtues that's paramount. So that no one is left wondering from from whom these virtues are supplied. Paul says, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul communicates a blessing so that the saints would ever increasingly appreciate and experience the peace of the gospel which is sourced from God, our Father, and Jesus Christ, the Lord. I want to emphasize the subtle way that Paul communicates the reality that God is your personal father, saint. That fact provides peace alone. That the God whom you and I have sinned against has reconciled us in Christ, not just so we're all right, not just so that we're neutral, but that he has made us children of himself such that we can cry out, Abba, Father. Paul acknowledges that this, this peace and love with faith is from God. And I want to encourage you, saints of Redeemed South Bay, if you're anything like me, sometimes you simply need a dear brother or a dear sister, to offer you a a God-sourced blessing because you need to be reminded of who you are in Christ and what you have in Christ. I'm going to go out on a limb and say you guys are like me in that. So, So what do we do? We make it a point to offer God's force blessings to one another. Brother, God bless you. May his peace be upon you. May his love overwhelm you. May the faith that he's granted you encourage you. For he is your father and you are well because you're in Christ Jesus. Now having blessed the church with the god source blessing, he finally offers the kind of blessing that I call Christ-oriented blessings. In verse 24, again the verse reads, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And the Greek could very literally be rendered this way, Grace with all those who unceasingly or incorruptibly love our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is of course God's favor that is undeservedly bestowed upon sinners simply by God's sovereign choice. 
And historically, theologians have differentiated between what's known as God's common grace and God's saving grace. Common grace is this idea that God is simply gracious to all people. To, to some extent, he has favor upon all of his creatures. And where do we get this idea from? We get it from places like Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9 that reads, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. We get it from places like Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. As Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And now he's going to make a remark about the Father who is in heaven. It says, For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So we get this concept that God is gracious to all people. His common grace is for all, but we get a secondary concept. God's saving grace or God's specific grace or God's special grace. And this grace is not special because of those who receive it. Rather, it is special because it's God's favor that undeservedly, that is undeservedly bestowed upon sinners unto salvation. And perhaps we see this most clearly in the first chapter of Ephesians. Turn there with me. Let's remind ourselves of this beautiful reality of God's saving, specific, special grace. Chapter 1, verse 3. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time so that so or to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. That sings of God's saving, specific, special grace. And this grace is manifested in sinners through their belief in and love for our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says grace, be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, we know that he is speaking about the grace from God that is rooted in and flows from this saving grace that the believers have received. However, what are we to do with this last phrase? With love, incorruptible. Do you love Jesus with love, incorruptible? That's what the text is saying. Grace be to all you who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a special or certain kind of love. It's an incorruptible love. And, and I don't know about you, and I don't know how wise it is for a pastor to share this, but I'm going to share it. My love for Jesus is weak. My love for Jesus is weak. 
And it's not because of who he is, but rather it's because of who I am. Yet I can say with full confidence that I love the Lord Jesus Christ, however weak it may be. And so the question is not, how much do you love Jesus? I think that's a bad question. The question is, do you love Jesus with incorruptible love? Or maybe we put it this way. What is the nature of your love for Jesus? It's a big question that God answers himself with a very simple answer. Two texts that I want to read to you to provide the answer to this question. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Verses 1 through 6. Again, Paul writes here, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Hear me now. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we're still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One other text that I want to read. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. John says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jumping down to verse 19, we love because he first loved us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Beloved, you can say with great confidence, however weak or however strong your love for Jesus is, that it's an incorruptible kind of love because the source of that love is God himself, such that we cannot be plucked from his hand such that Jesus laid down his life for the church for the church for his sheep in a securing fashion such that I don't have to wonder will this love last because if, if it's up to me it won't loving Jesus incorruptibly is a gift from God and it's a reality for every true believer but what does that do What does that do? It necessitates a continual commitment to ever increasingly love the Lord Jesus in the midst of a world that hates him. It moves us to this reality that I love God because he first loved me and in sight of what he's done in Christ, how can I not live for him? Though I fall short each and every day, my love is made manifest in this way. I repent and I follow. Christian, you need grace to love Jesus in a world that hates him. And Paul bestows this Christ-oriented 
blessing upon the church because God in Christ has oriented himself to his people such that we orient ourselves to him in service to one another in the power of the Holy Spirit. So perhaps the best way for me to close this all up is with two sentences. First is this, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And second is this, in and by his grace, May the saints of redeemed South Bay convey Christian care and bestow beautiful blessings one to another for his glory, for our good, and for the benefit of those under our influence. Father, I pray for this church. What a joy it is to know who we are in Christ. What a joy it is to serve Christ. Lord, we love one another, as has already been expressed earlier in this service, but our prayer is that we would have deeper love for you and therefore deeper love for one another. And that that love would manifest or display itself in our conveyance of Christian care one to another and in our bestowal of beautiful blessings one to another. Help us, Lord, to more fully and to more deeply care about the who and the what and the where and the why and the how in one another's lives for Christ's glory, that we would share ourselves deeply and truly, that we would speak the truth and love to one another, that we would speak in such a way that we seek to edify one another and build one another up in Christ. Lord, help us to increasingly care for one another. And Lord, help us. Help us to remind one another who we are in Christ. Help us to greet one another and bless one another with the reality that God is our Father because we're in Christ Jesus. And in light of who we are in Christ Jesus, that we might walk in unity in accordance with the gospel. Help us, Lord, to remember that you have oriented your love toward us such that we might commit to love you more fully, more deeply, all by your grace in the context of this local church. Have your way in us, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.